Greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health Options show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is still building the portal. It's going to be a project for a while. It's amazing. I saw a demonstration last Tuesday on the soundhealthportal.com showing how she can import a WAV file from somebody or have you recorded live on air or live actually now from your own computer and run it through the software and get amazing amounts of data on imbalances and states of what's out of uh, whack. That's a very technical term. Uh, considering our guest. <laughs> yeah, out of whack. That's what we call it in the medical world um, or in the non-medical world. But really, it's it's amazing how much information is available, and I'm really so happy that it's now available online, and she's adding more and more software to that every day. And currently, there are campaigns. If you go to soundhealthportal.com and click on, I believe, the products page, you'll see campaigns. And what those are, free, you can join for free, and you do a vocal recording right online, actually two vocal recordings right online. It's best if you have some kind of microphone. Uh, just because it improves the intake of the vocal print. And then you pick the campaign you want, such as neuroplasticity or from the fires we had 9-11 toxins, which was really designed for measuring the amount of toxins you were exposed to and what was in your system. But the neuroplasticity is interesting because it shows you what's going on in your brain. And then you'll receive a report usually within 10 to 12 hours of that information. And you can just do it from online. I go back so far, we used to have to haul around a computer and all sorts of stuff. So I'm really excited about that. And this is the point at which I say, this is going to be one of those shows. Dr. Stephen Schempf, our guest, has an amazing background, decades of research and work. And it's such a great, we were just talking backstage, we'll get to that. I'll just say it's going to be a great show. It's one of these shows I know that you're going to want to pass it on to your friends. And right about 15 minutes after the show, you'll be able to find it at soundhealthoptions.com. Click on the radio tab, then click on the Sound Health Radio tab, and you'll find the link there. And that'll take you back to the show notes and the links to the doctor's book and his other information. And or you could go to Stitcher or Pocket Casts or iTunes. Stitcher is cross-platform. That's why I mentioned that one, and it's free. And you could go to any of those and search for Sherry Edwards, and you'll find um, we're just a little over 700 hours of shows, but you'll find this show at the top of the list. And it's going to be one of those that you're going to want to listen to again, and you're going to want to send to your friends who are like, I'm having an achy knee, and I don't know why. And the doctor gives this combination of great hope and, I think, really clear guidelines in his book. And with that, I'll introduce our guest. Stephen Schimpf, MD, is a quasi-retired internist, professor of medicine and public policy, former CEO of the University of Maryland Medical Center, and Stephen has authored six books for the general public. From the bedside where he treated patients with acute leukemia and lymphoma to the boardroom where he served as the CEO of a major academic medical center, Dr. Schimpf has witnessed firsthand the explosion of diagnostic and treatment technologies including the emergence of the genomics revolution. He has also dealt with the frustrations of trying to manage a large healthcare organization in an ever-changing healthcare landscape. An Eagle Scout, Dr. Schempf is a 1963 graduate of Rutgers University, where he was a Henry Rutgers Scholar. He obtained his MD degree in 1967 at the Yale Medical School, where he was inducted into Alpha Omega Alpha National Honor Medical Society. Dr. Schimpf joins us to talk about his most recent book, Longevity Decoded, The Seven Keys to Healthy Aging. Welcome, Dr. Stephen. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. You know, I think my mother must have written your introduction for you. <laughs> I could just do a show just reading your bio. I mean, the amount of what you've done and the history and the things and the research and the books. I'm not even going to mention any of the other books. I'll put them in the show notes because that can take a long time just to talk about each of those. You're obviously, and I mean this in the kindest and most positive way, slightly possessed, and I admire that. You're really, <laughs> you're really, you're on it. I'm going to start out with a, it's going to be this question. What is aging? We talk about it a lot, but what is it? Well, I guess there's a couple of ways to look at it. One is you can look in the mirror. 
uh, yeah. or look at your own <laughs> photographs over the years, and you can see the aging. The other thing you can do is you well, I'm, I'm 77, so I'm going to get that out there. And I can tell that um, well, I can't do what I used to do. I can do a lot, and I think I'm in pretty good health. I know I'm in pretty good health. But, for example, uh, we have a little cabin out in the mountains of West Virginia, and sometimes look up at the top of those mountains and say, I remember when we used to go hiking right up that mountainside. <laughs> and now I look up at the mountainside and say, that was a great memory. Um, still can do it, but I can't do it as fast. Um, I like to chop wood, or actually split wood for the fireplace in our little cabin. And I can still do that, but I can't go for as long anymore. So what's happening is that our, our we're, we're losing ground, if you will. All of our organs, all of our functions are losing about 1% of their ability each year, right. starting when we're probably in our 20s. Percent doesn't seem like very much. And, of course, if you're 25 and you lose 1%, you don't notice it. Um, but when you get to be 77, you've lost quite a few percent, and now you notice it. I look in the mirror after a shower, and I say, I never was a big muscular guy, but not as much left there as there used to be. Uh, that's just a few examples. And in your book, you talk about your father's folding wooden ruler. And I can't remember if it was a friend of yours that looked at the ruler and looked at it as a kind of a measurement, an actual measurement of longevity. But was that a, was that a tipping point for you to write the longevity decoded? No, it was actually a friend. Uh, okay. I had started on it, and I told him about the project, and he then told me the story of, of his own father uh, and, um, and this person he had seen on, on, uh, on a video from some years before, and it was about a it was a 72 inch ruler, six foot ruler like carpenters use on those fold up ones. And as this person talked, they slowly unfolded the ruler. And the man said, "You know, here I am. I'm just about to the point of 72." And at that point in time, this was a few decades ago, that was the average age that men got to. And he said, you know, here I am, <laughs> um, really close to the end of this. Will I get to the end? Will I make it further? And I think that's a, we all have that sort of, uh, we don't think about it when we're younger. We do begin to think about it when we're getting close to that mark. Um, I told you I'm 77, and that means I'm close to that mark. That today, the average age for a man uh, is, the, the average age of death is 78. Or I should say the average lifespan. is. There's a difference. The average lifespan is 78. So I could tell you that I'm close, too. But anyway, my friend, when his father died at age 72, he was looking through his dad's uh, things, and he found the 72-inch ruler. And at uh, the time, he was in his 40s, I believe. And so he felt like he wasn't too close to the end. But now he's in his 60s, and he said, you know, I, every so often I get that ruler out, and I open it up. And he said, I'm not so concerned about it, but I see that there's a, there's, a me there's a marker there, there's a measurement, and I have to think about what do I really want to do with the rest of my life? Hmm. So I didn't start the book off. Actually, it's in the beginning of the book uh, because I think it's a great story, but it's not what got me on this, uh, on this quest, if you will. And... We're going to jump around. I'm going to establish something, and then we'll get into the seven steps, seven keys. Is genetics our destiny? Is that it? No. no. Okay. Uh, oh, the, the, our genetics has a huge impact on, on who we are and what we can and can't do and what diseases we might or might not get, for sure. But it's really only a small part. The big part is how we take care of ourselves over our lifetime, um, how we... Eat. I know we're going to get to these in detail, but it's all about not just called our lifestyles, how we function how, or how we don't function, much more important than genetics. Hmm. How we function. Yeah, so okay. I guess another way to say it is uh, your genes do not need to be your destiny. Ah, okay, that's great. Okay, now 
We'll get back to that. I know we'll get back to that. Uh, my lead in my lead in question to the seven keys is how do we change the for at age forty on one percent decline, and that leads us into your seven keys to health. Yes. So I think the important well, just to back up for a second. So the one percent decline. What's that tell us? A couple of things are going on. One, we're aging, and two. Uh, we're increasingly likely to develop chronic diseases like heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, and so on. We call these age prevalent because they're more common the older we get. But we don't have to develop those diseases, and we can live longer if we can slow down that 1%. And on the other side of it, of course, is we can speed up that 1%. So it's all, again, back to how we live our lives. And so that gets us to those seven keys, and we can reverse it. Uh, you know, it's seven keys to healthy aging, or it's seven reverse keys to let's get there faster and get more disease and shorter life. <laughs> and let's start with, you know, let's get this one out of the way because I know this is a tricky word, and I know you'll explain it much more better. Much more better. Wow. Um, yeah. Much better is your number one. Uh, key is diet. Yes. Nutrition. Uh, what goes between our lips is really, really important. And we probably shouldn't, I use the term diet, but probably shouldn't because most people hear the word diet and they think about, you know, I'm supposed to lose 10 pounds this week or whatever, and it becomes a, a, a chore. Uh, it's really more about nutrition. And as we get older, what we need are fewer calories because we don't move around as much, we don't do as much, yet we need more nutrition, more nutrients, because we don't absorb the nutrients as well as we used to. So we need a what I call nutrient-dense, calorie-light meal. But let's go back to the person who's in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Uh, what, what do we need to do? And the answer is kind of the opposite of the what I'll call the standard American diet, which, by the way, if you think about it, the abbreviation is SAD, Standard American Diet. <laughs> Some other people use uh, the modern American diet or MAD. So you can have SAD or MAD, whichever you like. Um, so what is that diet? Well, it's heavy in sugar, heavy in white flour, and light, <laughs> uh, low in vegetables, fruits, uh, whole grains, um, thin fish, maybe a little heavy in meats. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of the reverse of what we should be eating. Think of a pyramid, uh, and, and people see the food pyramid concept, but uh, the, 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 in quotes again, the diet I like is the Mediterranean diet, which is basically heavy into vegetables and fruits, whole grains, nuts and seeds, olive oil, avocados, for example, and then that's the bottom, so that's what you get the, should have the most of. Next up is fish. So we need, we need, we should eat uh, a fair amount of fish every week, a couple times a week anyway. And above that is, is, uh, is dairy, and dairy is fine, uh, but we want to go a little bit lighter on that. Above that is poultry, a little bit lighter still. Uh, above that is red meat, less, less yet. And above that is sugar. At the very top of that peak is sugar. And that, in that little tiny, it should be a really tiny corner up there. Unfortunately, you know, think about what for many of us, we get up, we, um, we have a bowl of cereal, which almost always has uh, added sugars in it. And, um, and, and maybe hopefully we have some fruit to go with it. A cup of coffee with maybe some sugar and cream in it. And then mid-morning, time for that coffee break. And, of course, we need to have a little pastry with it. So that's white flour and, uh, and probably some unhealthy fats that made that pastry taste so good. And, of course, a lot of sugar in it. And then at lunchtime, maybe we go to one of the fast food places. I won't name any of them, but, you know, get that hamburger and french fries and soda. And the soda is just liquid candy. It's full of sugars. And then in the afternoon, you know, it's the afternoon break. And then we have dinner. And, unfortunately, we don't tend to cook our own dinners anymore. Uh, everything is really simplified, which is great, but the simplified things all have the wrong foods in them. 
And then maybe, you know, it's time to go to bed, but let's stop in the refrigerator and just maybe a little ice cream before I go to sleep. So we, we're eating. I find this number fantastic. Uh, the, the amount of sugar in an, that's, that, that's produced per year per person in this country is 152 pounds, according to the Department mm. of Agriculture. 152 pounds. Wow. So you could rightly say to me, Steve, is it possible we could eat that much? And I'd say, well, you got to account for the amount of food that gets thrown out. So maybe that's, who knows, 25% of the food gets thrown out. Well, let's take 25% away from 152. I think that gives us 108 pounds of, of sugar. I like to put that into kind of get the visual sense of it. If you say, sugar comes in five-pound bags, actually, I think they switched to four-pound bags, but let's stay with the five-pound bags. Um, that's, um, that's, that's, that's 20, 21 bags of sugar sitting on your kitchen table. And if there's two of you, that's 42 bags. And if you're a family of four, what's that, 80-some? I can't do math while I'm thinking of talking to you on the phone. But in any event, it's over 80 bags of sugar on your kitchen table. And is it possible to eat that much? Well, it is. Um, the average can of soda, and we have to switch and convert from pounds to grams because that's how they measure it in, in, in on, the, on the ingredients list. But the average... Um, um, soda has about 40 grams of sugar in it, but who has just one soda? And besides, you go get a big gulp. Uh, so the amount of sugar uh, per day that people eat is, just for sodas, is probably maybe over 100 grams, whereas the American Heart Association says that a man should have no more than 37 grams and a woman no more than 25 uh, for, you know, for health. So we, we are big consumers of sugar. And, and of course, we're not counting the, um, you know, that pastry and the cookies and everything else that we have. So we eat the, re- oh, and the other thing I forgot to mention was we don't eat whole grains. We eat white flour. And white flour starts in your mouth to be digested by the saliva enzymes and then finishes up in the intestines. is very quickly converted to sugar. So um, white flour is just, in a sense, another, another form of sugar. It gets in that, so it goes up in our bloodstream right away and causes, it causes problems. So what we need to do is go down to the bottom of that uh, pyramid and eat a lot more vegetables. And, and I was reading something that my wife gave me yesterday, which said, you know, don't, don't torment yourself. Maybe just add one more in today, just one more, and see how it goes. And maybe next week you add one more in and see how it goes. You don't have to make the whole change all at once. But the big change to make is to reduce the amount of sugar we eat. I want to jump in there for just a second and ask about, sure. since you bought you bought up, brought up one of my favorite things to yelp about, is the Talk a little bit more about what I call the two tricky white food, sugar and white flour, refined white flour, and their potential long-term effect on our longevity, but particularly the liver. I mean, they're both really kind of hard on the liver, ultimately, aren't they? Yeah, so I think I probably should not get into too much biochemistry here, but but think about it this way. that white flour is converted to sugar in the intestine, which is glucose. That's, our, that's the basic energy source our body uses. So we absorb the glucose, also from the sugar glucose. So we absorb that into our bloodstream, and that travels around. Let's say you're walking and the muscles of your leg need some, some energy. So uh, it uses insulin, which rises with the sugar with the glucose, and that gets the, uh, the sugar that's needed, the glucose that's needed, into those muscle cells so it can use it as energy. It also goes to your brain for energy to make your, your brain cells work and so on. Well, those cells don't store up glucose, so if you have extra, because you've eaten a lot of it, as you were just saying, it goes to the liver, and it gets converted to a substance called glycogen, which is just a storage form of, of glucose. So between meals, 
uh, if you're walking around some more, trying to think a little bit, and you're, all those cells need some glucose, it gets converted back from the, from the glycogen in the liver into the bloodstream, into those cells that need it. But once the liver storage for glycogen is full, the next thing it does is store it in the liver as fat. So in other words, the glucose gets converted to fat, and it's stored in the liver. And once the liver's room for storing fat is exceeded, it's, you know, that, that storage room is full, then it goes and it gets stored in your belly as that, you know, that nice little pouch that forms over the years right down by your belt. So that's sort of, in, 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 in quick terms, what happens. So you were asking about the liver. Um, it used to be that the biggest problems um, with the liver was, uh, well, hepatitis, of course, uh, or alcohol, but nowadays the most common cause for someone needing a liver transplant is because they have a fatty liver, and that fatty mm. liver goes on to uh, uh, a fibrosis in the liver, a hardening of the liver, so it can't do its function anymore. So it's actually a real problem. Okay, there's a whole show right there, but we'll keep moving here. <laughs> so let's go to step uh, step two, which is exercise, which I like to think about particularly because I know about the blue zones in, the, in that study. In those cultures, in the blue zone, I'll ask you about blue zones in just a second. In the blue zone cultures, they don't. I don't think they have the word exercise. It's really part of their lifestyle. Exactly, yes. So talk to us about not exercise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, well, just imagine, so for so many of us, we get up in the morning, we hop in the car, we drive to work, we go inside, try and and park as close to the office building as possible, go inside, turn on our computer, sit down, and stay there until lunchtime, and then get up and go, and then turn around, come back to the computer and work some more, and then get up, drive back home, and then have dinner and sit in front of the TV set. So... We didn't move very much. But the people in those blue zones, or to say it differently, our ancestors, not very many generations back, they were up and moving all day long. They had to. They had to, they, because they were largely farmers or later on working in industry. Um, it, was, it was constant movement. So today, well, actually, I'm sitting talking to you. I probably should stand up to talk to you. It would be a smart thing to do. But we sit too much. And sitting is just a terrible thing for our for our bodies. Our bodies are meant to move. They need to move. So if we are going to sit at a minimum every hour, almost set your smartphone with a with a buzzer that every hour get up for 10 minutes, move around, walk a little bit, maybe climb a set of stairs and back down again, anything at all, but don't sit there uh, because <laughs> I, I'm going to use this term. Sitting is the new smoking. You know, we don't... As a society, we don't smoke as much anymore, in fact, very little now, but we do sit, and it is, it is a, a disaster. What we also need to do, besides standing up every so often, is to get some movement, some, some walking. You don't have to do hard jogging or, or biking or hard swimming, but you need to do something for about 30 minutes every day, you know, just a nice walk. And my own suggestion, if, if there's a place where you can do it, is take a walk where it's kind of quiet. Maybe there's some trees around. You hear some birds chirping. And you can kind of just lose yourself for a while. Get away from all the, the stuff of the day. Uh, but just or, or walk with somebody. And you can chat. That's fine. And if you stop to see something, you know, you see a nice bird and you want to look at it for a minute, that's fine. But if you stop for too long, then add some time to your 30 minutes. Um, but anyway, just get up and move. But then the second thing, our muscles need to be used, not just the walking, but we need to do some weights, if you will, resistance exercises. Our, again, our muscles need that. If, if, if you go back again in time at the farm, your muscles were used, being used all the time, digging a hole or uh, chopping wood or throwing hay or whatever it might be. And, and women working in the household uh, was, was, you know, there was a lot of hard work there. So we need to, at home we can do things like sit-ups and push-ups and the plank and, and, and exercises like that, but it's also good to go to a gym. 
and and use some weights or use you know a Nautilus type machine. And then the other, the third thing, as we get older, just as our muscles are de- declining some, uh, our our um, our balance is declining, and so we need balance exercises to slow that decline down. So good to add in some balance exercises. And wouldn't doing the kind of what I would call when you're walking, I'm, I'm a walker out in nature, um, and doing sort of that cross call where you swing your arms, is that going to be beneficial for helping develop balance and keep that so we don't fall over? Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> but, you know, just, just swinging your arms a little bit, that's sort of just natural, and it uh, and it's using then some muscles in your back, but it's, it's just sort of a natural motion that is... Um, that's good. Um, the balance exercises are a little different, though. Uh, the first one you can do is find a, a hallway or a long room and walk um, heel to toe, the sort of thing that if you were driving a little bit um, unevenly on the road and the cop pulls you over, he's going to say, walk that line over there. So it's putting one foot down and the next foot straight in front of it and so on. Um, turns out most people over 70 can't do that very well, which is, you know, that's, that's saying that our balance is coming down. But we can turn that around uh, with some balance exercises. Hmm. I'm going to be, I, I'm, I'm, as we speak, I'm at a standing station. I don't sit, so I'm at a standing workstation. Good for and uh, I'm on a long enough tether, I might be doing some heel-toe while we're talking. Um, and now... I think this By the way, actually. You just encouraged me to stand up. I just stood up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm so much more comfortable. It it took a little while as we talked backstage, and the audience knows I was a chef for a long time. So I'm I'm a very accustomed to standing. It's just, and I sat sure. for a number of years, and then one day I stood up and went, "Wait, I feel so much better standing. I just feel more normal to me uh, standing." So I I'm a big fan of standing workstations. Um, and uh, speaking of walking in nature and a little bit of cross-crawl and balancing, then I think that probably leads into stress reduction as well. Because I know that's, mm-hmm. a, that's like the – this just sounds really strong. Is stress like the hidden killer that nobody ever talks about for some reason? I mean, we're all under stress, but stress seems like to be a real sleeper of chronic I, 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 things. I just hit it. You just hit it. Most people don't realize – the damage stress does to our bodies. Um, well, let's just imagine something. You know, you're out uh, crossing a street and you suddenly look up and you see this beer truck coming at you and you say, oh my goodness. And you can't obviously fight with the beer truck. So you have to run. And what's happening in your body is is just a sudden outpouring of hormones, uh, adrenaline, uh, cortisol, um, your heart rate goes up, your uh, um, Blood gets pushed to the muscles, uh, up to push to the brain because you've got to be able to think and, and, and run. It takes blood away from your intestines. You don't need to digest lunch right now. And, um, and, and it saves your life. So you get to the side of the road, and you, you can kind of feel yourself huffing and puffing a little bit. You can feel that adrenaline feeling in your, in your body. And then that settles down over 10 minutes or so. Everything's fine. Chronic stress we're releasing these same chemicals and others at a very low level. You don't feel it, but they're out there, and now this is, this is not normal. It was normal to pour them out and save your life uh, when you saw that truck coming, but it's not good for us to put out these low level, these stress chemicals. They cause inflammation, and they'll go to parts of the body um, I hate to call them weak points. Some people do. I don't, I don't have a better term for it. But it may cause inflammation in your coronary arteries or in your brain or in your joints. So think about, of course, uh, heart attacks, Alzheimer's disease, and, uh, and arthritis from what I just said. And it can attack any, any number of other areas. Um, so th- these chemicals are coming out steadily all the time. So over years... It can have a huge impact, but we don't feel it. We don't know it until the disease strikes us. Well, it's really hard. I mean, 
if the adrenals, which are supposed to be saved for flight or fight, are constantly squirting adrenaline out, it seems like it's really putting the body in its false state of, oh, my God, <laughs> which we don't need to be. We're supposed to be saving that. You know, back when you were when we were living in caves, that was saved for when the dinosaur was coming to get you, not exactly. all the time. Right. Um, so it's 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 gnarly. I think stress is really gnarly. I know that's not a very good medical term, but that's my my view yeah, but, on it. But but you hit it when you said in the beginning, uh, this is the the unappreciated problem. Uh, you know, we, everybody knows about diet. Everybody knows about exercise, whether you're doing the right things or not. But we don't really know about stress other than when we're really acutely stressed. And, of course, we do know about chronic stress, too. You know, the boss gave us a pain in the butt today, didn't appreciate the work you did, or got in a fight with your spouse, or your kid's giving you a problem, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, but those are probably those are low-level acute stresses. Uh, you'll get past those. It's these other things, though, that where you can't get him to get it resolved, and 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 they they're causing problems. And then we lead into the repair time, what I like to call the repair time, sleep, <laughs> another underrated, yeah. undervalued, it and it's know, free. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, we should go back to stress for a second, though, and just, okay, so we can't avoid all stresses in life, but so we've got to learn how to manage it. You can't just leave it alone. And so what can you do? Well, that walk in the woods, again, is not a bad idea, and getting up and exercising is not a bad idea, and eating good foods will also help, but eating a lot of extra sugar and white flour will, will make it worse. Uh, but then there's the specific things we can do about stress, which is um, just stopping and taking a deep breath, um, uh, taking a deep breath just turns tells your body to relax a little bit. Take not just one, but a number of them. Um, closing your eyes and just sort of dreaming off for a little bit. Meditation, something like Tai Chi or yoga, is all really valuable. Uh, any of these methods, whatever kind of fits you and whatever works for you, uh, is perfect and makes a huge difference. So from there, we can go to sleep. <laughs> okay. I was going to say that, relaxed. you know, because I, I think, right, exactly, we're very at ease. Um, I used to, for a number of years, I would go into a park with a group and do Tai Chi. Yes. And it was just so, I mean, you were in a park, so that's a good start. Uh, you're getting, so. I, it has so many wins because you're doing some of the social things. And you're in a group doing this really soft, gentle movement. It's not a martial art. It's very slow, easy motion. And you would always come out feeling like, wow, (laughs) in a very positive way. Yeah, I've never done it, but I've watched it. And and everybody says what you just said. The value of it is is terrific. Mm -hmm. Okay, now sleep. I say that with that voice because sleep is not my, uh, has never really been my friend. But that's a separate show. Yeah, <laughs> sure. So, you know, I have a number of friends who say, well, I can get by on four or five hours of sleep at night. And, and and so many of us, at least when we were working, maybe got more sleep than that, but certainly not a lot more. And maybe not more than six hours anyway. And we thought we were okay. But the truth of the matter is we need, as adults, probably about seven and a half hours of sleep. And there's so much that's going on. We never really knew until recently what's happening during sleep. But I'll just go through a few things. Uh, one of it, and this I, find, I find this really fascinating, is that when we're in a deep sleep, our brain cells literally shrink. And as they shrink, then a fluid forms around them. And think of it as sort of a slow-moving river. It's literally washing uh, our brain cells of toxins and things that, this, that the cells put out. And so if we are asleep for long enough, that slow-moving river is is just clean things up, if you will. I don't know that the washing machine is such a good analogy, but anyway, (laughs) think of it as, um, I like my river analogy. It's just sort of washing things nicely. Of course, it has to be a nice, clean river. So that's one thing that happens. And, And if you wake up and feel restored when you wake up, part of the reason is because it's cleaned all that stuff out. So a couple other things that happen. One of them is our memories. 
and I think I've got my analogy right here. When when you uh, say write a uh, or pre- prepare a document in, on the computer, so it's there, and you and, and and but now you and maybe you can even mail it out or, or or print it out or whatever, but you want to save it. Well, in order to save it, you got to go hit that button that says Save As, and then you pick out a folder, or maybe a subfolder, and you put it there so you can find it again sometime. So you're moving it from, what's it called, RAM, into the hard drive. Well, it's the same thing in our brains. We've got a part of our brain called the hippocampus where all the events of today have been stored away. And then during, the, during our sleep, um, our brain sort of sorts that out and says, okay, what's important? We've got to save some of this. And then we move that to another part of the brain called the cortex, and that's kind of our hard drive, and it can sit there, and it's been put where it can be found. And so that's a very important part of things. If we don't get that uh, cleaned out, the hippocampus cleaned out, tomorrow, imagine somebody <clears throat> excuse me, in college or high school, um, you've you got to clean it out so there's room to put new stuff in. Uh, I think is the best way to say it. If you don't have it cleaned out, you can't learn as well the next day. So, again, we need that sleep to do that cleaning job. Another thing about sleep is to, uh, uh, is to help with our, in a way, to help with our stress. Uh, it takes emotional events and saves the, the factual part of the event, but kind of tamps down the emotion so that you can wake up and you know, just, you know, the old thing about time heals all wounds. Well, it's because in our brains, um, during sleep, we're kind of, um, well, I used the word before, tamping it down. I can't think of a better word, so I'll just stick with that one. Um, and, and so they don't, don't bother us as much after a little bit of time. Those are just a few of the things that are going on while we're sound asleep. All right. I'll work on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm a big a couple, fan of the idea. Couple, Go ahead. Well, Go ahead. Let, me, let me give your, your listeners a couple of clues. We do some things, we tend to do some things that don't help us get a good night's sleep. One of them is to kind of get ourselves excited about something. So like a, uh, a TV show that's very exciting as opposed to kind of, kind of relaxing. Or we start looking at, at Facebook and we get so energized because of the political type <laughs> comments oh, yeah. that are on there. <laughs> and, or you look at your emails and oh gosh, the boss wants something done by eight o'clock tomorrow morning. But you shouldn't. Don't look at your emails at ten o'clock at night. <laughs> Turn the phone off um, uh, and 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 sort of settle down for a while. It's best not to to. It's best to have eaten at least three hours before you go to sleep at night so that the digestion process is finished up pretty much. And uh, then when you go into the bedroom, you want your bedroom to be really dark. Not a little dark, but really dark. And your bedroom shouldn't be where you watch TV. That should be in the living room or wherever. And then so the bedroom is for sleeping, very dark, and that means your phone should be turned off, your digital alarm clock should be turned around so you can't see it because the light in that phone, in that clock or the phone is actually a, a light that your brain can recognize even though you're asleep or your eyes are closed, and it starts saying, well, wait, it looks like morning's coming. So you want a dark room, a quiet room, and no distractions. And it's also good to kind of follow a schedule, going to bed at about the same time every day, getting up at about the same time in the morning. Those, all those things can help um, just make sleep come more easily and have it last longer without, you know, you bouncing around. Mm-hmm. I am a big fan of I have no electronics in my bedroom. Yep. None. I mean, I have a clock, but it's just you have to punch it to even see anything. It has no light on or anything. And part of that has to do with um, wanting not to sleep in a field of EMF if possible. Because yes. that's a whole another conversation. Um, just in general, I I'm, I know that that the body really wants to sleep and repair because it's in a restful state, and so I don't want anything intruding into that. So no electronics, no EMF. My Wi-Fi. I have my router set to turn Wi-Fi off at night, so nothing's happening. So I'm giving my body the opportunity. It's just I've never been a long sleeper. But 
that's me. Um, you're doing the right stuff. That's great. Okay, thank you. And then there's uh, our old friend, never mind, uh, number five, uh, no tobacco. That's trending yeah. in a very positive way now. It is, yeah. It used to be, gee, when I was a kid, which was a long time ago, it seemed like all the adults smoked. My parents, my mother smoked two packs a day, my father three packs a day. She used to smoke Chesterfield. He smoked camels. She had wow. a heart attack when she was 43, and nobody knew why. You know, a young woman having a wow. heart attack? Well, it was probably the tobacco. Yeah. Uh, but nobody knew that at the time. Her doctor did say, why don't you switch to filter cigarettes, which she dutifully did. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and, and she was just not the person you would think should have a heart attack. She was she was lean. She was moving all the time. Uh, she ate a good diet. She was exercised. She uh, you know, just all the things we're talking about. She she did, but she smoked. Um, nowadays, the I think it's like seventeen percent of Americans still smoke, and unfortunately, it's it, that it's, it's largely younger people, and of course, it's a it's a terrible addictions very hard to get rid of once you're once you're hooked um my mother died of metastasized cancer and she'd stopped smoking seven years earlier and as she was in the hospital bed she said if i'd known this was going to do this i would have never stopped i mean that's how dedicated she had been to smoking it was always the good news for me was that i never smoked because i grew up in a smoking household because I always hated the smell of cigarette smokes, and I just thought, it's disgusting, it's gross, what is that? Yeah. But I mean, yeah, no, tobacco, I, I've never, I, I've been around, I remember having been in the restaurant business, when people would come into like fine dining and smoke cigarettes, and you think now, it's like mind-blowing, really? <laughs> really, in between a meal, during a meal, uh, yeah. it's you know, mind-blowing. But it still actually is kind of mind-blowing that, you know, 17% of Americans still do it with everything we know. Really? Wow. Here's just a little number for us. Uh, if you take two groups of people, um, say, at 20 years old, and one group smokes and one group doesn't, but they're otherwise they're the same, and, and they have presumably the same genetics and the same types of work and they eat the same sorts of food, you know, whatever you can think of, and follow them out, and you'll see that the smoking group... Um, the males will die about 12 years younger, or earlier, excuse me, than their non-smoking compatriots, and the women will die about 11 years younger. So that's a, that's a decade less life. That's a lot of life lost just from smoking. Well, and not only is it life lost, but dying from metastasized cancer from cigarette smoking is bad, I mean, uh, that's, I don't want to get into detail, but I mean, it's not just the, it's not just that it kills you earlier. I'm passionate about this because I watched my mother die from it. But I mean, it does, it's not only that it kills you earlier, it's that you don't have a quality of life as a product of having been a cigarette smoker. That's, that's the part right. that and, blows my mind. And, you know, and the other parts about smoking, one of the big ones is that it causes chronic lung disease. So you just, you see people with these... Uh, uh, portable oxygen machines and so on that that are, are it's, it's 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 a result of the destruction of the lung tissue by the smoking and mm -hmm. then the other thing you know we always think about the cancer as you just mentioned um, but much more frequent are those heart attacks and other other forms of heart disease um, that the tobacco causes and and of course the uh, the chronic lung disease as well yeah it's amazing um, now, now we move into the category called intellectual challenges. So I'm, I'm fascinated with this. I think this is to longevity. I think this is a, an amazing thing. What is that? What are some examples of intellectual challenges? Am I supposed to be doing the New York times crossword puzzle every day? That kind of thing? Uh, <laughs> yes. But let's, let's just hang on for a second. So the, the first five that we just talked about, that's for all parts of our body, including our brain. But our brain needs two more, and one of them is this intellectual challenge. So like every, just like, a, like your muscles need to be exercised, your brain needs to be exercised. I think that's just a simple way to think about it. So the crossword puzzle, if you're really good at it, may not be enough of a challenge. For me, it's a big challenge. But for you, it may not be a big challenge. So it, it's, it's necessary, or I shouldn't say necessary. What we need to all find are things that challenge us. So it might be 
Oh, learn to play some music. It might be a new dance step, which, by the way, is also an exercise thing uh, because you're thinking about how to take the music and, and, and tune it into your, your steps. Uh, might be learning a new language. Um, just reading a book or watching TV uh, is not much of an intellectual challenge, although if you belong to a book club and then have to sort of defend your perspective, that's a little bit of a challenge. So, you know, you can turn that book, which itself wasn't a challenge, into something of a challenge with some other people. So those are the sorts of things. Uh, and and there's, there are, you know, games of skill like chess or any number of others. Um, we always say chess because many of us find them very difficult. Uh, others don't. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just whatever for you works, uh, we, sh- we need to do it. We've got to keep our brain functioning actively. And book clubs leads into the the next one about social engagement uh, in terms of the idea of getting together and having some kind of socialization. And and I want to add to this the idea of talking about the blue zones and how they stand out as social examples. Okay. So when we use the term social engagement, that just means that humans have this need, actually other animals do too, but have this need to interact with others. And it probably goes back to evolutionary things that you need to stick together in order to to uh, keep away from the dinosaur or the saber-toothed tiger or whoever, or, or to hunt together. So we, we, we have it sort of built into us. We need that interaction. And we can't be hermits. And, 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 and we can't be lonely. We can come back to loneliness later if you like. But um, you mentioned the blue zones. Uh, that's those are five areas of the world where, among other things, everybody interacts all the time with other folks. And you know, part of our problem as a society is we tend to become loners. Uh, well, you know, I'm overstating that, but so often that's the case that we're we're in a we're, there's loads of people around, but we're not interacting with them. Yeah, we were talking a little uh, shortly before the show backstage, and I was saying how I may talk to, between shows that I produce, well, just the shows I produce, I talk to a couple thousand people a week. And then the radio show, the radio show is another pile of people, but I'm standing alone in a room (laughs) talking to myself. I mean, my dog looks at me like, what are you doing? You do this a lot. What is that? Dogs have no sense of like what this is, standing and talking into a microphone. Mm-hmm. So I'm very aware that I need to socialize. I know it's, I mean, I enjoy socialization. It's just that it's not a chunk of my time currently. I have crowds that I socialize with. And, and that leads me back to the loneliness. Could you talk about the effect of loneliness on our longevity? Yes. You know, we we talked earlier about how stress and not enough sleep um, and just sitting around uh, releases these chemicals that cause uh, inflammation in our body. And loneliness does the same thing. A person can be lonely uh, and yet have people around. Uh, Loneliness is sort of how we perceive our world, whether we think other people like us or not. And I I use this analogy, um, and, and it may not be the best one, but it's the one that comes to mind. So think about some kids who are going to play ball. And so the, the, the two best ball players usually get chosen as captains. It's sort of, you know, everybody agrees. Okay, Harry and Sammy, they're going. And so now they start choosing amongst the crowd who they want to be on their team. And so Harry chooses the next best person, and then Sammy gets to choose what he thinks is the next best person and so on. And imagine you're the last one, but they've already got nine kids on each team. You're number 10. And you know, yes, you got picked off by Sammy or Harry, whichever it was, but you know you really weren't wanted. And you're only going to get to play a little bit. Uh, so that's loneliness in, in the form of a group. And maybe these are people that you're all quite friendly with in, in another setting, um, you, you have a lot of interaction with them, but in this setting, you know you're 
you're not, you feel at least like you're not really wanted. So that's, that's loneliness. Well, and I'll go back to the cavemen, cave people. Is that correct now? Um, <laughs> back when we lived in, I'll do it this way. Back when we lived in caves, um, being part of the pack was survive was a combination of survival. Well, it was really about survival. So that if you were going to go out and hunt, you could take somebody with you to literally watch your back. I know we say exactly. it, and we see that it's said a lot in movies, but it was really true. No, watch my back. There's something that could eat me. <laughs> so we yeah. hung out in packs because it was easier to survive. Yeah. Uh, so it was really part of you know socialization was. Uh, hand in hand with survival. If you were in a pack, you were more likely to survive. If you were out there alone, oh man, you know that saber-toothed tiger can sneak up on you. So, you know, it's a, yeah. And, and think of it in, in, in some religions and, and other groups. Uh, someone who doesn't, you know, who wants to buck the the system uh, is banished. You know, they marry outside the uh, the family. Uh, the, you know, the family's. Uh, concept of, of who you should marry well you get banished this can be quite devastating um, one of the worst things that we can do to a prisoner is put them in solitary confinement because again mm. it's, you know there's no interaction and it, uh, it, it 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 is like the other things we talked about to just pour out these chemicals again in low low concentrations uh, but they have a really negative impact over the years well, and I think, I forget where the research was, uh, but they talked about gathering in groups. I think the research was done on women, that they gather in groups because women seem to be more inclined to gather in groups like knit or sew or crochet or, you know, something, book clubs or, you know, all sorts of things, whereas men's groups seem to be more competitive, that yeah, they actually yeah, showed that, you know, serotonin levels were elevated when women got together in groups and, and talked. Basically, they're talking, but they're engaged yeah. doing something while they're talking, whereas men like to get together and beat each other up. That's a personal, yeah. that's a personal yeah. view. That's a personal view. <laughs> uh, something to that. Well, yeah, men are more likely to want to play a, a sport, and women are more inclined to interact with each other in a, in a more social fashion, if you will. Yeah. And uh, we're moving, we're, we've got seven minutes. Uh, this could be a bigger, much larger subject. Is genomics a game changer in what we can know about our future? Uh, yes, it is. Um, there is so much that can come from genomics. You know, it's only a, not even a 20-year revolution yet, but it, it is a... It has made changes already, and it's going to make a lot more changes. So what are just a few of them? Uh, let's take medications. Uh, when, if, if somebody goes to the doctor and they're found to have high blood pressure, the doctor says, okay, I'm going to give you this prescription uh, uh, medication. The doctor knows, I'm making this up now, the doctor knows that that medication is going to be effective in, say, 90% of people. And the doctor also knows that there's 8% of people that are going to have a side effect, let's say 5%. Again, remember, I'm making this up. So 90% is, uh, good, 5% bad. But for you as a person, you, don't, you care that it works, but you could be in the 10% doesn't work. And as far as the side effect is, well, 95% chance that it won't give a side effect, but if you get the side effect, that's you. So genomics can often tell us um, as we're moving along here, uh, whether you personally will respond to that drug and or whether you personally will have a side effect. So I think that's a big, that's, that's, that's coming, not here fully yet, but that's coming for sure. Uh, then genomics can help create a drug to uh, uh, solve a particular problem. And the example I'll use there is chronic myelocytic leukemia. It used to be that the average person lives, I don't know, four, five, six, seven years, uh, and at some point along the way, the, the leukemia would become an acute leukemia, very hard to treat, and you tended to die. But then came the understanding of what caused that leukemia, and it's a, it, without going into the details, uh, it's two genes um, coming together and creating, as a result of that, 
an abnormal protein, and it's that abnormal protein that creates the leukemia. So from there, they were able to find a drug that would actually block uh, the protein uh, uh, that, that was causing the problem, but only block that one particular protein. Not, and so there was very little side effect and very positive uh, efficacy um, function. And it's just changed um, everything about chronic myelocytic leukemia, where now people with, with a, uh, are living, some are, many are cured, and, and others are living, you know, decades. Uh, it's just a, it's a whole game changer, and we're going to see more and more of that. That's true coming up with a lot of new, uh, new drugs for uh, lung cancer and other cancers. Um, and I'm trying to just think of a couple of examples, which I can't right off the top of my head, but we're going to see a lot of that. So and can a we, few examples. Right. And, and so that we can really dial things in and target an, in what might be considered an imbalance or a weakness or a proclivity? One yeah, of those? And, 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 you know, the other things that we're learning is to look for genes that do cause a specific disease. And I mentioned the one about uh, chronic myelocytic leukemia. But there are others. There's a gene that causes uh, sickle cell anemia or Huntington's chorea um, and many others. And, and once those are fully understood, um, we're likely to find a way to fix that gene, if you will, because there's new technology now called CRISPR that has a, a, a great potential for possibly being able to fix some of these. I hate to call them genetic defects, but from our perspective, since it's causing us a problem, we'll call it a defect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a whole other show. Wow. Um, yes. <laughs> and since we're moving toward the end, is it is it ever too late to change behavior? Is there a point at which no. I just go, oh, I'm already a mess and good luck? <laughs> no, it's never too late to prevent, never too late to make a change. Sure, if you make your change when you're 77 years old like I am, you're not going to get as much of a benefit out of it if you make the change when you're 50. And that person's not going to get as much of a benefit out of if they made the change when they were 25. But heck, whenever you can, there's a benefit. And there's a, there's a pretty immediate benefit. So, no, it's never too late. And if nothing but, else, it's here. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but, <laughs> here's my but. Uh, think about, uh, we tell young people, you know, start saving for your retirement because that savings. It'll, it'll compound over the years, and if you start when you're, say, 25, um, you're going to have a lot more when you retire than you would if you, you know, tried to, you know, make it up later on. And it's the same thing here. If you can start with these lifestyle modifications when you're young, the, uh, the long-term implications are just enormous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... I think this is such a, I didn't mean to, but this is such a great closing question. <laughs> Are some of the seven steps being taught in medical schools yet today? Yes, but not adequately. How's that yeah. for an answer? Yeah. Uh, that was we, a, we, we don't learn much ahead. about, uh, we don't learn much. You know, we might have a couple of hours of lectures on nutrition. Same thing about exercise. We do learn a little bit about stress, but not much about chronic stress. Learn a little bit about sleep. Uh, we do learn a lot about tobacco, and we don't learn about social engagement, intellectual challenges. So, uh, will that change? I'm sure it will, uh, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm hoping in our lifetime. I'd like to really, uh, as as we talked backstage, I've interviewed a number of uh, MDs who've become functional medicine practitioners. And it's yes. interesting because they have much more of your, your what you're talking about, more of, you know, like what you put in your face makes a difference, is how I would put it. You know, just the whole engagement of the total, the gestalt of the lifestyle really is we are what we eat and other things. Yes, and just if I can add on to that, I think sure. the whole concept of functional medicine um, is one that's not well known again, is not taught in school as far as I know, not taught in training. Uh, and if you ask most physicians what's functional medicine, you'll get a glaze. 
but personally, I think it's really the wave of the future. All right, that's uh, that'll be our next show. We, I want to talk about that. Um, where would you like people to find uh, Longevity Decoded: The Seven Keys to Healthy Aging? I think just the simplest thing is go to Amazon, and uh, you probably can't spell my name easily, so just put in Longevity Decoded, or put in the seven. You'll remember this part: the seven keys to healthy aging. Put those words in. <laughs> right. It'll pop up. <laughs> yep, it's it's right there. I'm looking at it now. Um, okay, well, thank you so much, uh, Stephen. That was great. I knew it was going to be a, a good conversation from the book. And as I say, we'll be talking backstage about the next show because <laughs> there's so many other things to talk about. Okay, well, I, uh, I thank really you so much. It. it was a great you. conversation. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> 